At this time, we'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. I want to thank you all for welcoming me and my wife, Michaela, back to be with you all. I definitely enjoyed it last time, and so honored that I would I am able to preach for you again. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, and before we do anything as important, let us ask for God's guidance over the reading and preaching of His Word. Our God and Father... Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. You, O Lord, have inspired this word, have breathed it out for us, and have appointed it to be read on this day to convict our hearts, to mold our minds, to transform our spirits. God, today there, will, there are just so many things out to pollute our faith, to conform it into the patterns of this world. I pray, O oh God, that this passage of Scripture, and through my humble preaching, that you would convict our hearts, that you would convict us to seek a pure, unpolluted faith. Father, hide me behind the cross. Fill my mouth with your Holy Spirit. Move and govern my tongue to speak the truth. Father, I pray that all glory and honor will be given to you today. I pray that this word would be edifying. We thank you so much for all that you have done for us, O God. And we give this hour to you. Remove all distractions from our minds and let us focus on what your word has to say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. From Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ." For in him the, full, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, 
going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word does indeed remain true forever. It has often been said by many ministers that if there was one church that the American church tend to imitate, it would be the church in Corinth because of their unbridled, uh, sinful, and apathetic living. And while that is true in many cases, within the past decade, it was appear that the American church also seems to imitate more from the church of Colossae. Whereas Corinth was a sailor's town, whereas every pleasure known to man was offered, Colossae was a philosopher's town. And every doctrine, no matter how strange it was, seemed to found a home. And at the time that Paul wrote this letter, the Colossians had fallen under the influence of some strange New Age Gnostic philosophy, but were also being influenced by the traditions of the Judaizers that had been plaguing the church of Galatia. Now, scholars aren't sure whether these two uh, strange and a salt and uh, pepper views were opposing one another. But in fact, a lot of people think that they were somehow forming together into some strange religion there in Colossae. Either way, it seemed as if philosophy and tradition was being preached in Colossae and was choking out the preaching of the pure gospel. Again, I believe that to be very similar to the state of the church in our day. Across seminaries, pulpits, and especially social media, there is a great flood of different teachings that are being pushed onto the church. It's always something new. A new systematic oppression that the woke have uncovered. A new anointing that Bethel has discovered. Or a new tradition that the Moscow mood has recovered. All the while, the preaching of the pure and timeless gospel has become a scarcity in the land. Now more than ever, the church needs to heed this exhortation by Paul to that just as we have received Christ, so now let us walk in Him and rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So how are we to do that? Well, Paul presents us a battle plan in this passage. First, we must focus on the fullness of the gospel, which without a proper understanding, there is no foundation for us to stand on. Second, we look at the two counterfeits of the Christian faith, which is the foolishness of human philosophy and the futility of human tradition. In the end, 
we should not only have decluttered those things that would pollute our faith, but shall even set forth safeguards to prevent more falsities from creeping in. To begin, we have to start with the fullness of the gospel. And to do that, we actually have to start in the middle of our passage. Look with me in verse 9 through 15. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Beloved, mark that golden passage and, and hide it in your hearts. The gospel is defined as the person and work of Christ. And this passage stands as one of the most beautiful expositions of who Christ was and what he came to do. No one should expect to enter heaven if he denies so much as one article of this confession of faith. It begins with a doctrine of the incarnation, which, was pre which the previously mentioned Gnostic philosophy had denied. When Christ was born 2,000 years ago, his infinite divine nature took on a fully human nature. The Gnostics had reject rejected this, claiming that God did not even create the material world, but that a lesser evil God created it, and so all material was evil. Therefore, in order to excuse Christ from being evil, he only took on a form that appeared to be human. Now, the great problem of this false teaching is that if Christ was not fully human, his death could not atone for human sins. The Father's wrath needs to be satisfied by a perfect human sacrifice. And this is why the Apostle John declares in 2 John 1.7 that all who deny the humanity of Christ are indeed antichrists. At the same time, the Colossians also seem to deny His full deity as well, believing Him more to be an angel, and thus neither fully God nor fully human, but some celestial being that instructed men on how to achieve divine enlightenment. Verse 10 and 11 silence this nonsense, declaring that Christ is fully God and fully human. The fullness of deity, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, and that those that receive Him are filled with Him and have no need of a special knowledge or gnosis as the Gnostics claim to believe in, they have no need of any of that kind of special knowledge to be united with God. It was by faith alone they were united with God through Christ. Next, Paul deals with what it means to be united with Christ. In Christ, we have no need to shed our blood with circumcision. 
For the shedding of Christ's blood was enough to count believers circumcised. It was enough to count them clean and righteous before God. He cancels the debt that was given to us by the law, which held us captive to the point of death, both spiritual and physical. Salvation, therefore, consists of Jesus plus nothing, and not Jesus plus the law, which the Judaizers have taught. And when Christ resurrected, it made a public display that indeed death has been conquered, the debt has been paid, the wrath of God has been satisfied, and all who trust in Christ will not face the wrath of the law. In addition to a legal cleansing of our record by the shedding of Christ's blood, there is also a spiritual cleansing of our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Verse 13 says that we were dead in our trespasses. We are not only legally separated from God by our sins, but we are morally separated from Him. We have no natural interest in the things of the one true God of the Bible. And so either we change Him to be conformed to our own sinful interests, as other religions have done, or we flat out deny him altogether, as atheists have. All the while, we continue living our lives as slaves to our sinful passions, returning to them like a dog returns to its own vomit. What we need in addition to an atonement is a regeneration, a spiritual resurrection, towards a life that seeks to fulfill our chief end of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. And only that same power that raised Jesus from the grave can perform this work. We cannot change ourselves. We cannot amend our ways. We cannot completely repent without the power of the Holy Ghost. He comes into our hearts and He resurrects our dead hearts the way that He resurrected Christ there in the tomb. We must be born again and converted so that our greatest motivation will shift from the satisfying the lust of our flesh to fulfilling the purposes of God. To some of these words, I can think of no better words than those of Charles Wesley. Veiled in flesh the Godhead He. Hail the incarnate Deity. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinner reconciled. Believe in this simple truth and you shall be saved. We need not climb heaven's mountain with high-minded philosophy or rigorous tradition. But heaven has been brought down to us in Christ so that we who are united with Him on earth by faith will be united with Him in heaven. So then, is there, are we to say that there is no place for philosophy or tradition in the Christian life? We have to be careful of making such a broad statement as some have done. Philosophy literally means the love of wisdom. And Scripture calls us to love wisdom and cherish it above gold and silver. But there is a wisdom that comes from God that is revealed to us in His inspired and inerrant Word. 
and a quote-unquote wisdom that comes from this world which is foolishness to God. And therefore we must learn to distinguish the wisdom of God from the foolishness of human philosophy. In order to do so, we must be grounded in the Word as Paul exhorts his, us to do in verse 6. We have to be rooted and established in the faith. Those who are in charge with detecting counterfeit bills are do so by carefully examining an authentic dollar bill. And so that when they see a fake bill presented to them, they're able to recognize the discrepancies because they have memorized every marking of that dollar bill. And in the same way, when a new doctrine comes before us, we ought to be so grounded in our faith that when we see this new doctrine, we will see the discrepancies. We will see where it varies. Scripture calls us to move from the milk to the meat. The meat is that orthodox biblical theology that is found in the pages of God's Word. It is nourishing and it is strengthening to the soul as meat is to the body. It does not merely swell the head with useless knowledge, but gives practical guidance into helping us understand God better and thus helping us to live out our lives with that understanding. And there is enough of this meat to last us for thousands and thousands of lifetimes. The whole counsel of God that is necessary for man to know is contained in His Word. And therefore, we don't need to go outside too far. We read books that are dedicated to studying the depths of His Word. There are a multitude of great books out there that are dedicated to such things. The great theologian John Owen is one of my favorite authors. And he once did an intense study on the book of Hebrews. And this 12-chapter epistle, I believe... He went through and he came back with a massive seven-volume commentary from studying every single word and verse of that passage. He just combed through every word and verse with a fine-tooth comb and had so much that he could extract from that, from just that one epistle. And those are the kinds of books that we ought to be reading in addition to the Word, written by someone who has the utmost respect for the Word, and they demonstrate that in how they write and how they live out those writings. But at the same time, there is an even greater multitude of books that aren't even worth the paper used to make them. They killed a lot of trees for nothing that was pretty much worthless. Here is where the world tries to pass off the fat of human philosophy for the meat of biblical theology. The old timers had a saying called chewing the fat and it just referred to just leisurely prolonged conversation and it often was just unproductive and unfruitful. This is exactly what human philosophy does. And much to Paul's annoyance, it was a favorite pastime of Greek culture. And the Greeks had much to boast about. There are many philosophers like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, the Stoics, the Epicureans, and so forth. And while some of that might have been useful, much of it, the majority of it, was just aimless wandering. What the, Paul, what the Apostle Paul referred to 
as godless and idle chatter. Paul refers to such talking as nothing more than empty deceit. Why? Because it appears to be deep and spiritual, but in the end, it's just chasing the wind. It's not going anywhere. It's, chase, it's like a dog chasing his own tail. It has no fruit. It has nothing edifying in it. The amount of godless chatter that went on in one seminary that I attended was astonishing and heartbreaking. I arrived at their prestigious so-called theology course hoping to hear some valuable lectures on the attributes of God. And instead, we spent several classes, the first several classes discussing the color of Jesus' skin. The only significance that Christ's race had was that he was a Jew whose atoning sacrifice opened the doors of the covenant to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the, Jew, the Jews thought it was just for them, but he had opened it. Europeans, Africans, and everyone else in the world, we were dead in trespasses. We were walking in the uncircumcision of our flesh, as verse 13 indicates. Ephesians, we were aliens of the covenant. We were walking in our own things, like we were having nothing to do with God. Think about it. At one point, most of our ancestors were barbaric pagans committing horrible atrocities in the name of some imaginary God made of wood and stone. When we read the Old Testament and we read of the Philistines and the Amalekites and so forth, we got to remember that was us. That's our ancestors. Yeah, they may have lived in different countries, but they practiced the same things. And rather than leaving them and their posterity to suffer the consequences of their sins, God in His great mercy, sent evangelists, missionaries to them to proclaim the gospel and turn these heathens into children of the kingdom. That is the gospel message. And what this beautiful, timeless, this is a beautiful and timeless gospel and what doctrines that were like critical race theory and intersectionality and all those other things that are just getting thrown out all that does is substitute a cheap human philosophy of racial supremacy. Come judgment day, the last thing that we'll be, we'll, any of us will be thinking about was who was black, who was white, who was brown. Instead, all we will be turning our attention to is who is part of the sheep and who is among the goats. I have to make that abundantly clear. Nothing that we talk about today, race, politics, status, class, everything that our world is just going on and on and on about, none of that is going to amount to anything on that day. The only thing that mankind is going to be concerned with on that day is, am I among the wheat that Christ has come to gather into his barns, or am I to be a tear thrown before the fire? Has Christ paid for my sins on the cross, or am I to pay for them eternally in the lake of fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched? Whatever is going on in your life, there is nothing more important than you figuring that out. 
And no, no matter what suffering you're going through, if you are among the saved, that is more valuable than anything this world could offer. Look to authors like the Puritans who sought to answer those kinds of questions. If you think our nation is on the brink of collapse, I would, it, I'm going to assure you it paled in comparison to the times of, the, of Great Britain during the Puritan times. Just endless civil wars, constant corruption in the church and in the state. And despite all of that, these authors focused primarily on making sure that their readers were saved. That's all they seemed to care about. One writer, was Joseph Allen, wrote a book called A Sure Guide to Heaven. I just finished reading this month. And it focuses his entire attention on what it means to be genuinely converted. There's a reason we still read a book that's 400 years old, because his message has not changed. He makes little to no arguments or time talking about the, the religious and political turmoil going on in his day. The only thing he was concerned about was, are you converted? Are you going to heaven? Are you right with God? John Bunyan could have used his time that he spent in prison to write some long essay about religious liberty. Instead, he writes his very famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress, which has been a guide for people on how, just the most beautiful analogy of how to come to faith, of what it looks like to come to faith in the gospel and persevering to the end. These books ponder things of eternal value. And they ought to be filling our bookshelves at home, not as substitutes for Scripture, but as supplements that are deeply grounded in the Word of God. Now, just as there are good and bad philosophies for Christians to meditate on, there are good and bad traditions for Christians to practice. Just like with philosophy, the traditions that Christians are to practice are found solely in the inspired and inerrant Word of God, and are meant to be nourishing to the soul rather than a legalistic burden. And this is what will separate true Christian piety from the futility of human tradition. As I said before, human traditions are not found in the Scriptures, but are traditions made in addition to the Scriptures, as if somehow this, it makes a person pious by following them. As if the Old Testament did not have enough commands to follow, the Pharisees had compiled a gigantic volume, literally I think it was about this big last I saw it, of oral traditions that they called the Talmud. And it dictated everything from how many steps you could take on the Sabbath day to how long the wick of your candle had to be. Modern readers mistake those Pharisees for being lovers of God, uh, lovers of God's law. But on a number of occasions, Christ points out that they were more in love with these human traditions than they were with God's law, to the point that they neglected the greater for the lesser. These laws, as Paul states in verse 23, give the appearance of self-imposed religion, but have no value in mortifying the indulgences of the flesh. And while many of these 
Talmudic traditions are not practiced very often by Christians today. It is a fact that throughout much of church history, Christians have added on traditions to the church, some of which have been nothing more than profane and pagan superstitions that are contrary to the Word of God. And of course, we know that the church that has been the most notorious for doing this has been the Roman church, the Papist church, that has mis mixed itself with so many pagan pollutants that it just can no longer really consider itself a true church. They have defied every rule given to us in this passage regarding traditions, forcing numerous holy days on the church that have no biblical warrant, prohibiting certain foods during their festival of Lent, praying not only to angels but to departed saints and to men, spreading superstitious lies regarding holy sites and relics and forbidding the priests from marrying. I was just telling my wife, I was like, you realize that the Pope has pretty much almost sanctioned same-sex marriage before he allowed priests to marry. And as Paul says in verse 23, what do they accomplish? Nothing. It's, they, have the, and they don't do anything to stop the indulgence of the flesh. All they're doing is just carrying with them the stench of hypocrisy. I mean, it doesn't surprise me what the Pope just recently did. If you look back at John Wycliffe's uh, complaints against the Roman Catholic Church since that was done, I think, in either 1300 or 1200, he was just reporting how the so-called celibate priests were among some of the worst fornicators in the world. And then that these holy sites were just and relics were just known frauds. These so-called veneration of saints didn't look any different than the way the heathens worshipped stone, stone gods. And the days of their so-called holy feasts were often filled with just nothing but debauchery and sensuous living. Nevertheless, Rome is not unique in such traditions. In the past couple hundred years, evangelicals have been composing their own superstitions that have done more harm than good. In the New Testament, Christ is the altar, the throne of grace, which may be accessed at any time and anywhere and yet so many so-called evangelists have deceived men into thinking they are saved by responding to some superstitious and emotionally driven altar call. How many souls will be marched into hell who marched down the aisle, recited the sinner's prayer, and written their name on a card and thought that that's all it was? These things provided no assurance of genuine conversion. I walked down the altar call when I was eight. I said the prayer. I got baptized by immersion as my church required. But I was not converted until years later. I remember that day I walked down no aisle. I said no prayer. I was under the weight of God's convicting power. And I just lifted my hands and wept and surrender. That's all I did. I don't even, I would not say I did anything that day, just but do what the natural thing that a man does when he is overwhelmed. And that is just simply surrender. That's what it looks like 
to be saved. Christ said it was not the long-winded and rehearsed prayer of the Pharisee that was heard, but the cry of the tax collector beating his chest and begging God for mercy and that received salvation. Those things that we add on to the church, they're taking away from the gospel. And I could rant all day on the numerous unbiblical traditions of the modern church. But I feel convicted that we, I actually need to give some time to those authentically shown traditions that do come from Scripture, but are very little practiced by many Christians today. I'm going to mention psalm singing, because Scripture commands it, as we are to do it a number of times, and yet only a handful of churches still do it. I have contended, I've attended a conservative and evangelical church for, 20, for all my life, but I was in my 20s until I even heard a psalm sung in worship. My whole life, I've seen people arguing about hymns and contemporary music. Which one is, should we be doing? And there was just little to no advocacy for the songs that God himself had written. They are literally composed by God, containing what John Calvin called the anatomy of the human soul. And we had the audacity to go months and years without even singing one of them in our worship. I don't care how beautiful or popular a song may be, it is not going to hold a candle to anything that is breathed out from Yahweh himself. Granted, we don't sing them to earn our salvation, but if we manage to go through our saved lives without taking advantage of this marvelous treasure, then we rob not only ourselves, but God of this intimacy that we could have with Him. I mean, Christian musicians dream of writing that one song that's just going to touch heaven. And here we have songs that come from heaven itself for us to sing. And yet... Psalm singing has just become this thing of the past, a memory of bygone days. Let us sing the songs of our God. Let us sing the songs of our people. If you don't have a Psalter at home, add that to your Christmas list. Now, speaking of Christmas, I am going to talk about Holy Days. Because we have to discuss it. It is here in verse 16 and 17. Let no one pass judgment on you regarding a holy day, I think, as the King James actually says. For the substance belongs to Christ. Samuel Miller once preached a sermon on this topic, and it began with stating that there is no day under the gospel dispensation commanded to be kept holy except the Lord's Day, which is the Christian Sabbath. Now, I, I do personally love Christmas in my own life, and I don't mind Easter, but those days are not commanded in Scripture to be kept holy. What is commanded is that we don't forsake the gathering of ourselves, as is the habit of some. That the church gathered on the first day of the week, as Acts said. Because it was the day that Christ rose from the grave. And the Apostle John specifically referred to it as the Lord's Day. That term, the Lord's Day, has the same kind of possessive terminology as the Lord's Supper. Meaning there are ordinary suppers and there's the Lord's Supper set apart, set aside for us to use in worship. And just likewise, there are ordinary days and there is the Lord's Day. 
The day he set apart to rise from the grave, the day he set apart for his church to meet, Sunday. I am bringing that up in case there would be anyone in here or anyone watching who follows what I call the two-timing tradition. That is, they go to church two times a year, Christmas and Easter. Now, before I go any further, let me state that we don't go to church to get to heaven. Indeed, there are many in church that are lost, just as lost as those outside of it. But make no mistake, regular church attendance is one of the most necessary signs that a person is a truly born-again believer. Because in New Jerusalem, what we will have is a Lord's Day that will never end as we sung earlier. A worship service that will not be hindered by the constraints of time and human inability. We won't get hungry, we won't get tired, it will just go on and on and on. And if you find it a burden to be in church one hour in the morning and one hour in the evening, then heaven will be hell for you because we will essentially be in church for all eternity. If fellowshipping with fellow believers, singing the praises of God and gleaning from the teaching of His Word bore you to absolute tears, then let me assure you that heaven is not for you because that is what Scripture tells us that we are going to be doing. Hell is a place where men feel the full terror of what it means to be separated from God and the blessings of His people. But everyone in there purposely separated themselves from God and the blessing of His people while they were here on earth. If your tradition is that of a two-timer and you have no plans on repenting, that is where you will be. And I don't say that to be harsh or to be hateful. I say it to, because I love each and every one of you here and you who are listening enough to tell you that. Because there will be so many Christmas Eve services going on tonight and they know that they're going to have two-timers in their church tonight and they won't tell them that. I'm not saying go to church to get to heaven and get out of hell. I'm talking about a life that is shown that you are trying to do the bare minimum. You're trying to just show off. You're just following some superstition. You're not in right with God. Your heart has not been converted. We, a Christian, enjoys the Lord's day. He enjoys gleaning from God's word to be with his fellow believers, to be listening to the word, to be singing his praises. That is what it means to be a believer. And there will be so many who did their two times a year who will go before God in judgment and will say, Lord, Lord, but he will look to them and say, depart from me. For I never knew you. Because if you want to know how important church is to Christ, remember that he died for his church. And if you separate yourself from church here on earth, he will separate you from church there in the judgment day. 
because only the church is going to be saved that day. This is the kind of traditions that Paul is denouncing, adding things on that undermined the real commands. I know some don't celebrate Christmas. I celebrate at home. I know Andy has his different thing that he does at home, but it, all that doesn't matter because what matters is that we gather together on the Lord's day. That's what really matters. We have these traditions that the apostle has given us as evidences of our faith. And if we add on to them and even try to look pious by them, it just comes out as hypocrisy. I mean, how many Christians are right now saying, keep Christ in Christmas, but they're not giving the Lord back the Lord's day? That day is used for something else. It's used for sports. It's used for other things, for sleeping in. That's not, that's not piety in the eyes of God. Immerse yourselves in the apostolic traditions of the New Testament. It draws you closer to God. It will strengthen your intimacy with Him. I once heard... You know, growing up in the in the Southern Baptist Church, we had four rules that or piety can be reduced down to four rules: don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, and don't roll with women who do. But none of those things on that list, if you really think about it, are even sins in and of themselves. What is a sin, indeed, a sin that Christ explicitly hates, is for us to teach as doctrines of God the traditions of men. This is especially true when, like I said, we pose as being pious by our adherence to these extra traditions while neglecting the weightier matters of the law. I have been around a lot of Christian men who were just boasting that they just had never took a sip of alcohol, they never drank at all, and in their private lives they were enslaved to pornography. Christ allowed the partaking of alcohol within moderation. He drank himself occasionally on moderation. But if a man, he says, if a man so much as looked at a woman with lust just once, he was guilty as an adulterer. He was guilty in that it would be better for him to cut off his hand and pluck out his eye than enter into hell fully intact. That's how serious Christ takes his actual law. That's how not serious he takes the traditions of men. Study the scriptures. See which traditions you are holding to that are polluting your faith. Look for those traditions given for your benefit that you are neglecting. Never ever settle for external piety, but always strive daily to slay your indwelling lust. And as we come to a close, my hope and prayer is that each of us have been convicted to seek that pure and unpolluted faith. It will be difficult to do with all that is going on in the world. We're going to have to turn off the TV. We're going to have to put the phones down 
put off all social media for a time and just take up our Bibles and read. Get your families together. Take up your Bibles and read. Now more than ever, we need to be grounded in the timeless truths of Scripture, in the foundation of our faith. Study those confessions of godly men of old who burnt the midnight oil, searching the Scriptures for understanding and wisdom. Be zealous to see the return of biblical traditions that are actually taught in the Bible that would silence the chaos of our current culture war. In our conversations, in person, and on social media, let the gospel be proclaimed before we even begin discussing any new philosophy or tradition that has come up. Above all, let's be sure that our religion is indeed authentic, pure, and undefiled before God, and not just merely some philosophy or some tradition posing as such. But it is an everyday lifestyle that dictates the way we say, think, and do, so that in whatever we do, in word or in deed, let us do so for the glory of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this message would pierce our hearts, would pierce my heart. Step on my own toes, O God, and just move me to be convicted by your word, to be grounded in the faith and in the scriptures. Do so for everyone here. Move our hearts. Bring revival to this nation, O God. Let the gospel be proclaimed again. Throw out all the philosophies and traditions that are invading our church. Raise up godly men who will stand against them and proclaim this beautiful message of your salvation.